In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. As you very well know, this coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and next Sunday, of course, is the first Sunday of Lent. So this is our, as we enter into the Henry Vaughan, the poet, called Lent, the, the deep but dazzling darkness of Lent. That's what he called it. And it is. And we're about to enter it. But right before we're about to enter it, we need a bright light. We need to remember to say some alleluias today. Our closing hymn has a lot of alleluias in it. But after this, until Easter, we don't get to say hallelujah anymore. And all of our hymns are going to be kind of on a downbeat. They're going to be slow. They're going to be quiet. Nothing like what you're experiencing today. And so on this, we get a burst of brightness. And it's the uh, transfiguration event. In order to understand it uh, as best as possible, as I always tell you, context determines content to some extent. So it's important to, to determine where this is in the, in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately before, before this particular episode, what has happened is that Jesus has been with the disciples. They have turned their faces to Jerusalem. They're going towards Jerusalem. Je Jesus knows what's going to happen at Jerusalem, and he tells the disciples exactly what's going to happen. And he tells them, you know, there I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be dead for three days, and then I'm going to rise again. And what we find in that episode is that Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter is rebukes, rebukes Jesus that it's not going to happen. That's not the way it's going to work out. We don't want to any, be any part of that, so don't even consider it. And that's the episode where Jesus finally says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Immediately following that episode is where we get chapter 9 of Mark's gospel. Six days later, so after that episode, for six days they've been traveling, and finally they climbed up to the mountain, an unknown mountain that's never named in the biblical narratives which mountain he's talking about, but they climb up a mountain. And as you well know, you know, I'm not a mountain climber, but I've been on top of some pretty high mountains. One of them is Table Mountain down in uh, Cape Town, uh, outside of, in, in the middle of Cape Town in South Africa. And one of the things about being up on a mountain like, Cape, like the one in Cape Town, Table Mountain, is that you see things differently. The air feels different, doesn't it? You see the city of Cape Town differently. You see it from above. You see it differently. You see the clouds differently. You see the lights differently. Everything changes when you're on top of the mountain. And that's perhaps why Jesus has to take these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to the top of the mountain so that they can see him differently, so that they can see the changes that are taking place and realize that what Jesus has been talking about is going to get fulfilled. And so they climb up to the top of the mountain, and when they get to the very top of the mountain there, Jesus' clothes are transfigured. And as they open their eyes, there's a cloud around Jesus, and all of a sudden they see uh, Moses, the paragon of the, of the law in the Old Testament, Elijah, the paragon of the prophets, and Jesus in the center. And it's almost a photograph from God saying to the disciples, you know, these two guys are important, Moses and Elijah. They're principal people in the life of the faith, but Jesus is the focal one. Jesus is the one you need to pay attention to. Jesus is the center of the action. And as soon as that happens, you can see that the clouds have disappeared. And they hear a voice that says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. One of the things I love about this particular narrative is that the reaction of the disciple is, is, is like most of our uh, most of our re reactions when we have the experience of the holy or the experience of anything that changes our lives. Every one of us has had high moments of life, don't we? We all have had a high moment in life. Things that change things around, that, that which is normal has changed. And by normal, I don't mean that which is average. By normal is that by which sets the norm. 
I'll give you a couple of examples. One of them is, have you ever seen LeBron James play basketball? Let me tell you, he's changed it. Six foot eight, and he plays guard or forward or center. It doesn't matter. He has changed the way that we see what the best basketball player can be like. So whenever we see the other guys, we say, oh, they're pretty good, but they're not LeBron. He's changed the way that we, are, we see that. A couple of years ago, my cousin was up in New York City, and after he had seen, he went to see it right at the very beginning, the, the musical Hamilton. And as soon as he got out of Hamilton, he called me up and he said, get some tickets for this. This is really special. Now, I'm not a lover of musicals. I have to tell you, it always bothers me that just when you get to a critical point, they start singing. <laughs> but as my cousin reminds me, that's the whole point of a musical. They're singing. But at any rate, and so we went up to see, uh, the, back in February of 2016, my wife and I went up to New York City to see it. And I have to tell you that once we saw Hamilton, everything has changed. That which is normal about a musical has changed, and you want to hang on to the experience. We went over to see uh, Get On Your Feet the other day at the uh, Kennedy Center, and after it, I thought to myself, that's very good, but it's not Hamilton. <laughs> that which changes what is normal. For all of us who have been blessed with being parents, you know that when your first child is born, things change. That which is normal has been changed. The norm has been changed. You go into the hospital as a couple, you come out as a family. And you realize right away that things have been changed, that the normal things are not normal anymore. So if all of these experiences are important, you can multiply them by a thousand for the experience, having the experience of God that these disciples had. It's like comparing the lightning bug to lightning. There is no comparison. And so these three disciples who are gathered there, Peter, James, and John, I don't know why Jesus picked just three of them, but he picks just three of them to go up there. Peter, James, and John are going up there, and they have the experience of God. One of the things that happens when we read these lessons at the last Sunday of Epiphany, which is the same lesson every last Sunday of Epiphany, every time that we read them, somebody in this congregation will come to me and say, you know, I had an experience of God. I heard God's voice. And one somebody after the 745 service said to me, I had the experience of God. He told me, she told me the whole episode and he said, do you believe me? And I said, yeah, of course I believe you. All of us have had an experience of God. That's why we're gathered here on Sunday morning. You've had an experience of God. Everybody has had an experience of God. And so we gather back together, not to recreate the same experience, but because the experience drives us back to be reminded of that which has changed in each of us. Peter immediately says, uh, saying, not knowing what to say, immediately speaks out about the experience. He's like many. I think there are two reactions to the experience of God. One of them is James and John don't say anything. Peter blurts it out. James and John don't say anything because I think they're paradigmatic for all of us who have had the experience of God, don't know what to do with it, so we just clam up. I think it was Lily Tomlin who said that uh, if I speak to God, you tell me that I am praying. But if God speaks to me, you tell me that I am nuts. And I think it's true. Many of us think that. So sometimes when we have the experience of God, we clam up. Why? We don't want to be considered a nutcase. So we try to deal, it by, deal with it by ourselves. The downside of that, of course, is that you're not sharing it with anybody else. 
The flip side, of course, is just start babbling like Peter does. Not knowing what to say, he just starts babbling. And that happens also. That's the other reaction. The problem with that reaction, that's a good reaction, and like everything else, it's a double-edged sword. Because the moment you start talking about it, in effect, you're telling somebody, if you have not had the same experience that I have had, then yours is not a valid experience. When in fact, you and I both know that all experiences of God are valid. Every one of us has the experience of God in different ways. And when we have that experience of God, every one of them is valid. And we can talk about them as long as we don't let somebody think that that's the only way to experience God. And then Peter does what all of us want to do to try to capture the essence of the experience. And he says, let's build three booths right here. In other words, let's build three churches right here where we've had the experience of God. It's a natural tendency. I don't blame Peter. Let's capture it. Let's hold on to it. One of my favorite lines in all of poetry is from T.S. Eliot. And it comes from the four quartets, and it goes like this. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. I tend to read that by saying that those high moments of life, those great experiences of life, either don't hang around or we can't hold on to them. And so they fly away. What we find in the story is that as soon as they've had this high moment of life, the cloud disappears, Moses, Elijah disappear, they're left with Jesus, and all that they get from the experience is God speaking to them, this is my son, listen to him, pay attention to him, he's the focal point, he's the one with whom you should be concerned, he's the one from whom you need to learn, listen to him. The Latin word for listen is obadire, that's the verb, obadire. Now I hope you hear the echoes of obedience in that word. Listening is connected to obedience. And I think what we find in this particular narrative is that God is saying to the disciples, as God is saying to all of us, listen, stop, pay attention. If you had the experience of God, pay attention to the experience of God. Jesus is the focal point. Listen to Jesus to determine how you're going to obey the will of God. And finally, as I said earlier, they can't stay up there. Nobody lives up on the mountaintop. Most of our lives are lived in the valleys and the slopes of the mountain. And so it is with Jesus and the disciples. They have to come back down. They have to come back down, empowered by the experience of God with a new normal, establishing a new norm about how they're going to see life. We return to the things that we're accustomed to, but with a different set of eyes and ears and heart. W.H. Auden has a poem entitled, For the Time Being, and this is how he describes coming down the mountain. He says, there are bills to be paid, machines to keep in repair, irregular verbs to learn the time being to redeem. So true. We have to come back down, but when we come back down, we are changed. Why are we changed? Because when we come back down, we keep the presence of Jesus in our lives, and we see things differently. From now on, I say it to you a hundred times, and I'll say it to you a hundred and one times before May the 20th. We'll see people as a unit of God's grace, unprecedented, irrepeatable, and irreplaceable, with a respect 
to be accorded to them as God sees them and empowers us to see them. To come down the mountain that the gospel can be complained and the experience of God can be shared with all. Amen.